Hello, and welcome to a Walk of Faith podcast. I'm Maribel Mayorga, and I'm on a mission. I hope to orient and guide you through your journey of faith. But I cannot do it alone, so we will go through it together with the help of many friends. You may have a lot of questions, which is totally normal. In fact, I am happy that you have them. So don't worry, we're going to cover them and help you so that you don't feel alone. So, what are we waiting for? Let's get started. Dear friends, this is the last episode of season three, and we're going to end up this season with Bishop Thomas Dowd for part two. We had part one first, part two. Welcome again, Bishop Dowd. Thank you. Pleasure to be back. So, uh, we, we it was awesome, by the way, uh, what we, all the questions that we received on, on the part one, let's say, and because of that. Now we have some questions, right, that were not answered from part one, but yep. we still have, we still receive some questions. So here we go. Like, let, I'm going to throw it to you because I really like how we did this last time and we're going to do it again. Let's start, okay. shall we? I, I, I know last time uh, I started by telling a bit of my personal story. So maybe we can start by saying, if you would like to hear my personal story, listen to the other episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna, I, yeah, I think it's better if we just dive right in. So. Yes, because I mean, unless you want to repeat it, do you want to repeat it? No, 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 let's just go for it. Let's just go for it. Um, okay, let's go forward. So, first question There's a lot of bad things going on in the world. Why does God allow this? Yeah, this is one of the classic questions that we get a lot of, which can be also summarized as the question, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? And from the Christian perspective, it's our belief that the most important value, and this is actually part of God's nature, the most important value is love. In fact, God is love. God is made out of love. Little kids want to know what God is made out of, and our answer is God is love. Love in a substantial form. But in order for us, if we're made in the image of God, to also be capable of love, which is our highest calling, we have to possess free will on some level. And so the ability to, to choose is an essential component of our humanity. Because love, in order for love to be real, it has to be free. Mm. If we try and uh, you know manipulate someone into loving, force someone into loving, it's not love. We can simulate affection and, you know, uh, uh, attachments of all sorts, but but really love, for it to be genuine, it has to be free. It has to be a choice. But that implies that we can choose the opposite. We can choose selfishness. We can choose behaviors that go against that love. That's what we call sin, moral evils. And basically, it's our belief that the reason there's evil in the world of any sort comes down to not just our own specific choices of evil, but also a climate mm -hmm. of, of choices that accumulates over time and acts like a drag on human society. I've given the example many times of my brother who passed away, my younger brother, he passed away from ALS is a terrible disease. We have no idea what causes it. Not really. And there are, isn't any effective treatment. Everybody who is diagnosed with it will die. But, you know, it's terrible. But when I consider, for example, how much research money goes into trying to find causes and cures for ALS, and I compare it to the amount of money currently being spent to fight the war in Ukraine, and consider the money being lost and the human life, the cost of inhuman life for people who are killed, for people who survive but are injured, for people who will have psychological injury. What a huge drag on societies around the world. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I hope we're not going to blame God for the war in Ukraine. That's obviously people who are making evil choices. Mm -hmm. And having to deal with the consequences of evil choices. If you add that up over the course of history, we see that there has been an enormous drag 
on human existence and life. So, yes, the fact there is evil in the world, that's true. And sometimes it comes through natural causes like ALS. We don't know what those causes are. But human beings were meant to interact in the world and discover it and you know, improve the way we work in it. And who knows where we would be? Imagine if our earliest ancestors in humanity, the first ones capable of rational thought and choosing, imagine if they never committed a single sin. <laughs> where would we be now? Yeah, I mean, exactly. we'd have, we, we would already have colonized the galaxy. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, the all of the imaginations, positive dreams of our hearts would be so much more realized. So that is really, really the the cause, the source. And which shows that, first of all, because it's our free will and God gave us free will and will respect our free will, I won't say that God is powerless, but there's a, a kind of a, a limit to God's action because he will respect our free will. But he can interact with it by appealing to us, by teaching us, and certainly by Jesus coming into the world. That is God respecting our free will, but respect doesn't mean leave us alone. It means constantly trying to work with us in order to help us to be better. And so that's a key part of it. And God's grace, God's forgiveness, these are all tools to help us overcome the key problem of evil. This is one of the big reasons, actually, years ago, why I became a priest. Oh. I, yeah, I always wanted to, I always wanted to be part of the force of good in the world. And I considered different ways of doing that, you know, economic development, going into politics, other things. But at a certain point, I realized at the root of it all is the problem of evil and sin. And and the solution is grace and goodness. And so becoming a priest was actually the most radical way I could think of to confront the most radical problem. You're going straight to the soul. Going straight to the heart of it. Yeah. You know, every, everything else. I mean, I have nothing against people who are researching cures for ALS. I love them. Please continue. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> but that's not my calling. You know, my calling is to get to the root that, you know, allows these other things to be ignored when they shouldn't be. Because yeah. we're too busy dealing with our own greed and our own selfishness yeah. or having to deal with the problems that other people's greed and selfishness cause to arise so that's the short answer to a huge problem the catechism of the catholic church says it takes the entire gospel to answer the problem of evil in the world but that's yeah that's the short answer if we want to remember two important words here that bishop Dow said i think it will be free will and love and then of course with many details of the catechism if you want to go yeah. uh, and read more but This is it. This I, I mean that question we see it everywhere. Yeah, the one, opposite and the opposite of love is evil. The opposite of opposite mm -hmm. of evil is love. Exactly. The second question. Oh, when I say God is with me, there's more than millions of people who are also saying that God is with them too. How can he be with us at all at all? How can he be with us all at the same time? Or there, does he has angels that take care of us? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think we have to, uh, perhaps an image can help us to understand this. Imagine uh, a radio station. It could be okay. satellite radio, it could be local radio. So you have a, a single person sitting in a booth who's speaking into a microphone, right? Or consider this podcast, right? The two of us are talking, but mm -hmm. lots of people will listen. Well, with radio, imagine it's live happening. So the radio waves get sent out from the antenna, from the station, and those radio waves are everywhere. They're invisible. They're penetrating the air all around. And then you have actual radios with their antenna that pick up the signal and turn it back into sound. So the single person who is speaking into the microphone winds up being present in multiple places simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it works. The, the Father, God, speaks to us, and our souls are like antenna. Mm -hmm. They're like internal radios that can pick up the signal and be able to receive the word. So the, the, the God is present to us. He's constantly speaking to us, and he's able to be present to multiple people, to everybody simultaneously. 
because God's communication, and it's not just words that he says, it's his whole presence. It's his whole, you know, reality that surrounds us. He's able to be everywhere all at once because he's constantly broadcasting that presence, which we can then pick up on. And that's how our souls are designed. Our souls are designed to receive not just a signal from God, to receive God himself. He's broadcasting himself, literally, and wishes to be present in our souls. It's a beautiful image, the radio. Hmm. I'm going to remember that. The, the radio, actually, it helps a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Third question. Okay, how do I know my sins from a younger age, but never confess them because I don't remember them or thought at the time it was not a sin? How does one make themselves at peace for things they do not know they did wrong? Like I ask myself, did I ever bully someone without knowing I was? Was I mean to someone? Did I intentionally hurt someone? I talk about bad about people. Did I judge people? Being a teen, being rude to my parents, et cetera. How does a one fair, make? Yeah, it's a fair question. And normally when, for example, we go to confession, we have to say the sins that yeah. we did, you know, and sometimes we can't remember them. There are things that we can't remember. Uh, you know, sometimes people haven't been to confession in a long time, five years, 15 years, who knows how long. Are they going to remember every single sin from every single day for 15 years? That's not really reasonable. Mm -hmm. So they, they remember the big ones that are affecting their conscience most. And they they confess those. And usually you also add a statement. And I also confess all the sins that I can't remember. But I'm sorry that I did them. And that contrition, that apology that we're making, even for things we can't remember, God welcomes that. And so sometimes what happens is, you know, people will confess the big sins and they can't remember the medium to small ones. Well, it's like injury. You know, if you have a paper cut and then you break your leg, guess what? You're not going to focus on your paper cut. You're going to focus <laughs> on your leg. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, as your leg gets fixed, you might realize, oh, and I also have a paper cut. I need a Band-Aid. So sometimes what we do is we confess the sins that are bothering us the most. We can't remember the others because they're kind of lost in the signal, you know. But then as those big ones are healed, then the other ones start to come back to our memory. And this is actually a healthy thing. Now, it doesn't mean we weren't forgiven when we asked forgiveness for all the things we couldn't remember. But it now gives us the opportunity to apologize for them as well, specifically. And sometimes it even comes down to very, very minor things that that bother us a lot, even though objectively they're pretty minor, normally that is a sign that our conscience is becoming more sensitive as opposed yeah. to being insensitive. That's that's generally a good thing, as long as we're not becoming anxious about it, as long as we remember that the forgiveness of God is so much bigger than the sins that we do. We just need to turn to God with that honest desire for forgiveness and to apologize to the Lord, particularly through the sacraments. Those are so, the tools he's given us for that. So when the person goes to confession, confess their sin, the one that really affects, them, let's say, their soul, their heart, their conscience, but can that person also say, I want to also to confess my sins that I maybe don't remember that I did in the years or something like that, or she can... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You just have to say, uh, often people will add a little line like, uh, for these sins and for all those that I can't remember, I am truly sorry. Perfect. Okay. Um, another question. Why is it so important to go to church? Some people say they already have the relationship with God at home or in their hearts, and they don't need to go to church and they find that okay. Why is it important to go, I guess, physically to church? Okay. I think I think we have to uh, look at this from different angles. Like the question, the way it's being asked is, it's actually being asked from a very individualistic perspective, you know, like, what does it give me? But I think we also have to ask ourselves, how does God work? What is God looking for? Mm -hmm. When we go to the time, uh, all of our faith is rooted in the Jewish faith. And in the Jewish faith, God enters into relationship with his people. 
He relates to them as a people. He wants us to relate to each other in a way that is very profound, in, in deep relationship with each other. And so he wants to relate to us, not just one-on-one -on -one as individuals, but as a people. And, and he's the one who gathers us as a people. So if you consider the ancient uh, Hebrews, when they were in slavery in Egypt, and Moses came along and, and got them out of Egypt, mm -hmm. God came to save his people as a people. And so when we go to church, what we are saying is, I want to be part of the people of God. Mm -hmm. To have a relationship with God is not simply individual, because God himself relates to us as a people. So, you know, uh, uh, it, it, for the Jewish people, you know, a good believing Jewish person never asks themselves the question, you know, how is my relationship with God? They never just stop there. They always ask themselves as well, how am I connected to the people of God mm -hmm. that God has called to a mission as a group? And the church is is the new Israel, like we are also a people. And so it's not just about going to church on Sunday. The way we are gathered and formed as that one people of God is through the ritual. Again, if you go back to ancient Egypt, when the Israelites left Egypt, they did a ritual. They did the ritual of the Passover. Mm -hmm. And by doing that ritual, that was the ritual that marked them as the people of God. So if there had been some Hebrews at the time who said, ah, we're not going to bother, then they weren't part of the people. And if there were some ancient Egyptians who saw the Hebrews doing this and they said, hey, let's take part, they were part of the people. It's the ritual that defines who gets to be part of the people or who actually is part of the people. So that's the key idea. It's not just about going to church. It's about being part of the people of God, because God relates to us, not just as individuals, but as part of a people. We talked about confession earlier. Yeah. In confession, we don't just apologize to God. We apologize to the entire church, to the people mm -hmm. of God, whom we also harm when we commit sins. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's a priest who offers the absolution. He, he doesn't have some magic power. He is the representative of the people of God who receives that request for forgiveness. So we are reconciled simultaneously to God, but also to the people, to the church. So we always have to consider that dimension of people. An overly individualistic mindset has a hard time understanding this, but a, the mindset from the Bible and, and the ancient cultures always looks at how we fit into the people. I think. Uh, so maybe, you know, as a, as a Catholic is yes. I mean, we start, we have, we need that relationship with God, you know, but at the same time, I think the aspect of community is so important, right? As Catholic, I, we cannot just be me, myself and I, it, like as Catholic, we have, we need to be in community. Like you said, you know, I think we need, we cannot just be alone. And that's why we, we have to go, we have to go physically also to like to church. Yeah, it, we. Our commitment to the people of God is, again, through our choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we it, there's a dimension of effort that it involves. It's not a huge effort. I mean, there's 168 hours in a week. Going to church is one of them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's less than 1% of your time a week. Yes, yes. You know, so <laughs> it's it, like we're not being asked and it's not like we're being asked to push boulders up hills or something we're being asked to bring asked to sit in a seat you know it's an hour guys <laughs> it's an hour and you know uh, like depending it, on the priest right <laughs> well okay plus or minus but approximately approximately so it, it's but that hour is a powerful hour because it's a it's an occasion to worship god and to worship god together yes as a people and, you know, that loss of sense of connecting with God as a people very often causes us to lose our connection with each other. The time going to church is also a time for us to be generous with God. Mm. You know, it's, it really is a time of generosity. It's a time to give as much as receive and give of ourselves, even if the gift of ourself is just showing up. But there's a lot of power in just showing up. Yes. Uh, relationships are built and, and connections are made. Um, I know of a gentleman uh, very close to me 
who, uh, well, I've known him for years in that sense. Um, he passed away, he lived in another province far away, and he passed away, but he had become a bit of a hermit, Okay. you know, and so he had no real connections, mm -hmm. no friends, no family, and they, they just found him, his body, mm -hmm. you know, and who knows how long he had been passed away because mm -hmm. he had no human connection. Is that how God wants us to be? I don't think so. So how can we bring our friendships, our human relationships, and our relationship with God and unite them together? That's church. That's what church is at its best. Yes, exactly. Okay, another question. Oh, why can't priests get married compared to other religions? Okay, well, other religion, it's, it's not priest, I guess. It's something else. But the question is, why can't priests get married? I think he's that person is comparing to. Yeah, it, it could be to Protestants, Protestants or to, yeah. to Orthodox or to others. Um, well, just to correct that, there are some Catholic priests who are married. It's a small number, but there are some. The uh, And the, the rule is different between can priests get married versus can married men become priests? Mm. Those are two separate things. So, for example, among the Orthodox churches, they have married priests, but you have to have been married before. Once you are ordained, then that normally means you don't get married afterwards. Um, and so uh, the the issue is really, what's this celibacy thing all about? You know, why is anybody celibate at all mm -hmm. versus why is there a class of celibates? Mm -hmm. From our perspective, when you, first of all, read the story of Jesus, Jesus was celibate. But it's a celibacy that is a committed celibacy. You see, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. He refers to himself as someone who is married, but his spouse is not a human woman. His spouse is the people. Remember I talked about how we yes. relate to God as a people? When you read the Bible... The people of God is referred to as the bride, mm -hmm. and, yes. and God is the groom. He's the husband. And so what Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. He talks about himself that way. We spoke about this a bit in the, our last episode. And so the, the, the celibate status of Jesus doesn't mean that he rejects marriage. It means that he's actually broadening the sense of marriage to be married to the community. And so it's a question of service and love for the community. Um, and that's why, for example, bishops wear a special bishop's ring. This is actually a matrimonial ring. It mm -hmm. shows that I am married to the church. Now, St. Paul also talks about this in his letters. And he says that uh, it's fine to be married if you call to be married, but that the there is a form of celibacy that is dedicated to service. In the early church, young women, uh, normally women were got married off by their families. They were forced to get married. And so the church gave them the option of not getting married. So they, the church was actually one of the first institutions in human civilization that told women, you have the right to say no. Mm -hmm. Like that, that was just unthinkable in most yeah. cultures through most mm -hmm. of history. And for, for men, it was about saying, Yes, you have a duty to, for example, raise up children, but they don't have to be your own biological ones. You know, you can you can be raising up people as children of God. And so our celibacy for uh, not all of our ministers, but for bishops and priests particularly, is basically because in that part of our life, we want to be uh, echoes or, or images of Jesus himself, who was celibate and who... Uh, who had a committed celibacy for the sake of his love for the people. Yes. Well, so I, that that's the that's the basic reason. That's where it comes from. It it certainly is straight from the Bible. Celibacy is found okay. in the Bible and in the New Testament specifically. Definitely. Hmm. Okay. Oh, how do we really know that God is real? Why are there people that don't believe in God? <laughs> that question me too. Sometimes I'm going to ask myself, why don't people don't believe in God? And why are there different religions? 
Okay. How do okay. we really know that God is real? Why don't why are there people that hey, don't believe I, in God? We're we're gonna park this question just for one second so I can you go use the washroom. So we're gonna go start at that <laughs> go. question. Here. Do you Yes, what did you say? Sorry? Please ask you wanna ask the okay, question. Okay, yes, okay. How do we really know that God is real? Why are there people that don't believe in God? And why are there different religions? We have like three questions here. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a whole set of questions. So um, I guess the first question is, why are there different religions? Like, what is the Catholic understanding of that? It's, it's our belief that, well, first of all, the way we know anything about God is if God shows us. So there, we believe in there two kinds of revelation. So how God shows us anything about himself is through what we call revelation. So there's general revelation. This is the kind of revelation that is accessible generally to any people of you know all the history of humanity. And then there's special revelation, which is more the religious type revelation, like through prophets and, you know, through scriptures and that kind of thing. So the, the idea is that uh, general revelation, it, it's a bit like if God was an artist. So if you look at a group of paintings, suppose you, you hear there's going to be an exhibit for an artist in a museum. So you go to the museum and you look at the paintings. You could probably figure out some things about the artist. At, at the very least, you can figure out, well, there was an artist. And looking at the themes you might be able, or the, the techniques you might be able to figure out, well, the artist lived in this country or was part of this school of art or, you know, lived at this time period or had certain favorite themes. Like if every painting has a duck in it, you probably think, well, the artist liked ducks, you know, it's something. So you can figure stuff out. But there's a lot of things about the artist you might never know. For example, uh, what was the artist's? favorite food uh you know who is the artist's best friend when he was seven years old i mean you would never know you know quite possibly by looking at the paintings maybe but there's going to be a ton of detail you'd never know if you had a chance to go out for coffee with the artist sit down with them and ask them questions then you could learn a lot more details so the general revelation of the artist is through the works through the artwork the special revelation is through personal connection Mm -hmm. Same thing with God. So it's our belief that there is a general revelation. God has created the universe. And so by examining the universe through philosophical understanding of nature and everything around us, there are certain things we can come to know about God. You know, God's immensity, God's power, uh, you know, God's, uh, well, his artistic side, you know, the rationality of God, how the universe has laws of nature well why on earth are there laws of nature in the first place so all of that we can deduce about god the uh the thing is that only tells us so much if we want to get to know god's heart god's inner life mm -hmm. well that only happens if we can sit down for coffee with god right that only happens if god is willing to share those details with us well it turns out he is that's the special revelation so we believe that all human beings through all of history have had access to the general revelation because we all live in the same universe. And people figure stuff out and they create theories, just like we create scientific theories. People mm -hmm. create religious theories about how God works. And that's what all the different religions are. They're basically different religious theories about how God and spirit and all of that work. But they can't all be simultaneously true just like not all scientific theories are are accurate mm -hmm. some are mutually incompatible right and so what happens if the artist if god is able to tell us details of his life and that's where the prophets come in mm -hmm. that's where that's where jesus comes in you know jesus is god literally speaking to us directly there's so much. I mean, God is infinite. There's only so much we can take in at any one given time. So even special revelation is limited. And that's why the idea is we want to be close to God so that we can have our hearts and minds open to constantly receive that special connection, that special communication from God. So, you know, how do we know God is real? 
two ways. We can deduce, we can theorize that God is real by looking at the universe around us. And, you know, like I said, that's where all the other religions come from in some mm -hmm. ways. You know, it, there, there's a spontaneous idea. Wow, this universe is so amazing. There must be a God. You know, and, and it really comes down to that. But it's a deduction. It's a philosophical conclusion in some ways. The other way we know God is real is some people have this blessing of God communicates with them directly. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just a, a it, it's a reasonable thing to think that God exists. It's not irrational. But if somebody actually talks to you, then obviously you're getting an even more direct connection. And that's where we believe as Catholics that the the understanding of God is available to everyone. But it's also possible to have that personal connection through the Bible, through scriptures, through sacraments, and we encourage our own personal prayer. Our own personal spiritual connection is also extremely important in order to be united to the Lord. And all of that other stuff helps us make sure that that connection is something which is true. So why, why are there people, you know, this is a three-part question, why are there people that don't believe in God? I guess you have to ask them. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I was going to say that. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it could be for all kinds of reasons, right? A, a lot of people say they don't believe in God. And then I ask them, well, okay, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And they say something like, well, I don't believe in that old man who sits in the sky and zaps people. I'm like, well, I don't believe in that either. <laughs> like, what is, what is the understanding of God that's being rejected in the first place? There you go. There you, go. you know, and, and so I'm not sure people are not believing in God. I think they don't, very often they don't have a correct understanding of God. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, other people I've heard say, well, God is an unnecessary hypothesis. You know, they, they say, well, the universe seems to be running just fine on its own. What do we need God for? You know, science answers mm -hmm. everything. But the the simple truth is either everything is just material, just matter, we're bags of chemicals, or we also have a soul. They, yeah. mm -hmm. And if we have free will, we have some part of us that doesn't work according to the laws of nature, the pure laws of nature. Mm -hmm. That has to be spirit. And so once you say there's spirit, Guess what? You're off to the races for all the rest of it. And you might as well, you might as well at least be open to the possibility God exists. Yes. Yes, to be yeah. open. Yes. And it, it goes with the the first question, right? That we uh, absolutely that we answered. Absolutely. Uh when I was going through my own personal crisis of faith, uh back when I was in university, the first question I asked myself is, is this material world all there is or is there also spirit forget about if there's god just spirit of some mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. and i realized if if free will exists there has to be spirit and then everything else kind of flows from there so yeah most people who take a, a scientific atheism approach also deny free will mm. and i want to find it yeah find it in youtube videos all over the place the denial of free will mm. so the, the irony is the catholic church defense free will mm. we defend the correct use of it because we believe there are standards but we defend the idea of free will very strongly mm -hmm. and for those of you who want to listen um bishop dowd story part one friends you have to go to see a part one because he he really because right now you just mentioned a little bit of you know where uh where you were thinking you know before becoming a priest and all that part one there's everything in it the other question in our Catholic religion, is it bad to get a tattoo? Ooh. Oh, uh, I get this question sometimes. Uh, generally, no. Depends what the tattoo is, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you get yes, a tattoo yes. of like a Nazi swastika, well, that's a problem. But yeah, I guess. But, you know, having a having a tattoo is a form of self-expression. Mm -hmm. um, our, our normal rule is... You can make changes to your body as long as it doesn't harm the healthy functioning of the body. Mm. So can you get your ears pierced? Well, does it harm your ears? I mean, no. So sure. The Jewish men would be circumcised. You know, that that's a change. It's a minor surgery, but obviously God approves of it. You know, that's what the scriptures tell us. 
So tattoos, um, in the Old Testament, tattoos were uh, considered a no-go, like don't get tattoos. But that's because most tattoos were done uh, at, for religious reasons from pagan religions. Oh. You know, nobody was getting tattoos of Mickey Mouse, you know, or, or <laughs> what have you. It was it was a way of putting in your skin mm -hmm. a permanent connection to some god. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that that was against certainly the Jewish faith. But in principle, tattoos are are not a problem. Okay. Just depends what it is and why you're getting it. Of course. I was brought like, up like anything else. Yes. Yes. Okay. The other question I was brought up in the old school Catholic where you can't eat meat on Fridays. You can't take communion only when you do confession. I mean, it says old school, but I mean, it's, it's still happening, guys. <laughs> it's still happening. Uh, yeah. you, can't, <laughs> you can't take communion only when you do confession. Is this is this true? If and if it's true, what are other rules to follow that we should know of? Okay, uh, I think behind every Catholic rule that exists, it's important for us to know why it exists. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church does not demand blind obedience. Never. It's really ever, important what you just said. It's really extremely. If anybody ever tells you differently, they don't know what they're talking about. You're hearing it from a bishop. The Catholic Church does not demand blind obedience. We would like people to understand. So, for example, the no meat on Friday rule. Why Friday? Why not Wednesday? Well, because that's the day that Jesus died on the cross. So because he died for sin. And, you know, it's the death of the Lord. Every Friday is a remembrance of Good Friday. And so we're asked to do penance on Friday. Why is it not eating meat? Well, if we go back to the, the history of our church and of the countries in which the church was found, the meat, and even today, meat was considered a luxury food. Mm -hmm. It was the rich who ate meat. The poor didn't eat a lot of meat. So to tell the poor people you don't eat meat on Friday wasn't all that hard. I mean, they didn't eat a lot of meat anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was a way, actually what was happening is it was a way to tell rich people one day a week, you have to do something disciplined, something intentional that will remind you that it's not all about you, that there's a lot of poor people in the world too. And for one day a week, we are going to ask you in a minor way to live like the poor. Mm -hmm. It's a It was a tool of solidarity, of cutting across class distinctions, and so on. So the rule still exists. But the irony, of course, is that nowadays, um, you know, eating a hot dog might be a sin and eating a lobster dinner would be okay. Well, obviously, that's <laughs> silly. It, it It's going against the reason for it in the first place. The why, so, exactly. The why. So during Lent, during the season of Lent, we are asked more strictly to not eat meat on Friday because it's good to remember the rule. And then for the rest of the year on Friday, we could simply maintain the don't eat meat, but we could also substitute that with some other act of charity Again, the idea is always to put us in connection with each other, breaking down social barriers, supporting the poor, etc. So I, if I was Pope, I would change the rule, at least for Canada. I would say the rule for Friday is don't go to restaurants. Mm -hmm. You know, only only richer people can go to restaurants. People who are really poor can't afford it. So one of the ways to live like the poor would be don't go to a restaurant. Or if you do go to a restaurant, then you have to give an equivalent amount of money that you put on your restaurant bill. You have mm -hmm. to give that to a food yeah. bank. Yeah, because now we're like in 2023, right? They're like things, yeah. people yeah. like a vegetarian can say, well, I don't eat meat. Like, I don't eat meat. Exactly. So <laughs> does that mean they're supposed to do nothing? I mean, no. again, the philosophy is doing something to put us in solidarity with the poor. During Lent, I like to go full vegan. Mm. Be because to be vegan you have to think about it you know you really have to focus on what you're eating and what you're not eating 
Uh, I don't want to be a jerk about it, but you know, I, I try and be intentional during the rest of the time during my Fridays, I try and avoid the eating of meat because mm-hmm. I want to be intentional. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I'm visiting a family and they serve me something, I'm going to eat it, you know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're being kind and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be, well, you know, I can't eat that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I'll try and find some other way to maintain that sense of solidarity with the poor. So like the restaurant thing, for example, yes. would be a suggestion. A good example. Now, the the other piece of the question was, uh, you don't take communion except if you've gone to confession. Yes. Uh, that is, there is a connection between the two in the sense that if we have committed serious sins, we should not take communion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we aren't aware of sins on our conscience, then we can certainly take communion. You don't have to go to confession immediately before. You know, it's it's a question of don't take communion unworthily, you know, so do apologize before you you go for communion. Um, but I mean, we're all sinners. We all have day by day sins. And let's not forget that at the beginning of the mass, one of the first things we do is we ask forgiveness for our sins. Mm-hmm. So the, the sort of the ordinary day to day, what we call venial sins, minor sins. We can bring those to confession. There's no problem with that, but it doesn't block us from receiving communion. See, part of the problem is if, you know, if we live in a part of the world where maybe the priest only comes like once a month or something. Mm, Yes. Are are we, what are we supposed to do? Like not take communion for a month, for Mm -hmm. a year, for how long? So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a question of balance. It's a question of balance. Yeah. Yeah. I think you answered the this next question a little bit with your story. Why doesn't God heal everybody? I guess that person thing about um I don't know, everybody like in the world poor people, I guess, people are sick. I think you yeah. did talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, maybe I can answer that with a story. Uh, God, first of all, God does still heal people. Mm. You know, uh, I talked about sort of the atheist scientific worldview, and one of the weaknesses of the atheist scientific worldview is that all it takes is one miracle, and that worldview collapses, right? Because it can't admit any miracles. Mm-hmm. So are, do miracles still happen? Do healing still happen? Absolutely. And in fact, there's lots of evidence that it happens. We have medical records of amazing cures and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, I am aware I used to be a hospital chaplain. I did a lot of prayers with sick people, the anointing of the sick, which is one of our sacraments. And I have seen some amazing things. And so this one case, there was a gentleman who was in the hospital. He had a heart condition. And so he had gone in and they did some tests. They do scans of your chest before. And when they did the scan, they discovered he had a tumor in his chest. So they couldn't operate on his heart because he had a tumor, and they couldn't operate on the tumor because he had a bad heart. So the two each condition on its own could be dealt with, but together, each was blocking the other. So I I asked this family, I mean, I just saw them in the hallway in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I asked this family, what's the plan? And they said, well, we're going to go in with a probe, and we're going to take part of the tumor and do some tests, see what kind of tumor it is, and maybe give him chemo, shrink it, who knows, but we really don't know. We're still waiting for tests. So there in the hallway, we did the anointing of the sick. The test was a Friday. Saturday, I get an email. Father, that blessing was a miracle. They went in with the probe to get a piece of the tumor. They couldn't find it. They did another scan, and the tumor was gone. Wow. Now, I am always a little skeptical. I look for easier explanations than miracles. You know, I like miracles, but let's not rule out natural explanations. The mm-hmm. easiest one, of course, is they mixed up the scans. You know, maybe the first scan <laughs> was wrong. You know, there yeah. was no tumor. Then I discovered there had actually been three scans. They had found the tumor mm-hmm. and they'd seen it growing. Mm-hmm. So they knew it was there and then it was gone. So they operated on his heart and they fixed his heart and he got out of the hospital. But here's the thing. I, you know, I thought about it and I thought, you know, if God was going to cure the guy's tumor, why didn't he fix his heart at the same time? Like, why not give him a two for one on Good you know, miracles? <laughs> but that's when I realized that we are called to cooperate with God. 
We give God our life and he gives us back our life. Why doesn't God heal everybody? Well, really behind that is the question, how come we have to die? You know, why is, mm-hmm. it's not just about healing sickness. It's about why is there any problems of, of suffering in the world? Mm-hmm. We do believe that there will be a resurrection of the dead and even death will be cured eventually yeah. as part of the miracle from God. But in the meantime, we do our part. He does his part. And I have known people who passed away who had their deaths could even be considered beautiful. There was something, you know, marvelous because they, you know, when you're a priest and you do a lot of funerals, you go to the funeral home and you could tell right away who had faith. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The atmosphere Mm -hmm. in the room is completely Um... different when there was faith. There's sadness that the person Mm -hmm. is gone, but there's also hope. We don't grieve as if we have no hope. Mm. Uh, And so, you know, we do our part and God sometimes does heal. But even Jesus at one point said, you know, when he was contemplating the suffering on the cross, he said, you know, Father, if this cup can pass me by, you know, in other words, if I don't have to suffer, I'd rather not. (laughs) But if it's part of a bigger plan, okay. You know, like this guy who had the tumor, his his health was not completely restored. But what happened is by removing the tumor, the doctors could then do their job. They were blocked before. Now they were unblocked. So it's about our partnership and our efforts united to God's efforts. So does God heal? I, I Another story I got called to the hospital. There was an older lady and she had pneumonia. And because of her age and the weakness from the illness, pneumonia is very, very dangerous for the elderly. Mm -hmm. And so she was dying. You know, this, Mm -hmm. she was already in a coma and her breathing was very shallow and you could hear the, the gurgle, you know, like it was really, she was very, very sick. Her daughter was there. Her daughter was very upset and I anointed her and I said, you know, this is a sacrament of healing. So look for the healing, whatever it is. Well, I saw in the newspaper, the lady had died. I went to the funeral home because I remember the daughter was pretty upset. So I thought I'll support her. I went to the funeral home and there's the woman in the coffin at the end of the room. And the daughter is there. She had her back. So I tapped her on the shoulder. She turns around and she says, Father Tom, when you said look for the healing, you weren't kidding. Now, the lady's dead, right? She's at the end of the room in the coffin. So what do you mean? She says, well, I went home that night. I came back the next day. Mom was awake. She was sitting up in bed. We talked. We laughed. My mom said to me, you know, I'm very sick and I'm probably probably going to die soon. But I think this is just wonderful. We have this time together. She lay down for a nap. I went to go get some lunch. And she passed away patient, you know, quietly in her sleep. So she wasn't cured, mm-hmm. but she was healed. Wow. She, she got the healing she needed, and not just for herself, but for her daughter. Yeah. So God's idea of healing and our idea of healing sometimes are two different things. We need to align our idea of healing with God's idea of healing. Beautiful. Wow. Ah, we have just two more questions. Yes, I'm going to go for it. Okay. Okay, I'm going to. Okay, this, this is a long question. I'm going to. Put it by the end for the end. The other question: How do I know if it's really God's voice or my voice in my head? I'm trying to make the right decision. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a fair question. Um, usually, the way we discern any kind of personal inspiration, because to say God is speaking to us is what's called a private revelation or a personal revelation, personal inspiration. But sometimes it's God. Sometimes it's just our imagination. So how do we know the difference? Uh, Usually the best thing is to talk it over with friends, talk Mm -hmm. it over with people we trust who are people of wisdom. Uh, We can take that inspiration, but the Bible says, do not ignore the spirits, but test them. You know, do not ignore the, the the voice of God. Don't ignore it, but test it just in case it's not actually the voice of God. It might just be our imagination or something else, you know. So usually the way we do that is we test it according to the standards of Jesus's teaching, for example. And we also bring it 
we we test it according to the standard of well common sense you know mm-hmm. and and so we look for people who we trust are themselves close to god and we we bring it up with them you see part of the problem is god speaks to us but it's uh it's like language you know if suppose you're learning a new language like mary bell you are originally from latin america yes. so your first language is spanish yes and you also speak english obviously french mm-hmm. uh suppose you decided to start learning german well you're you're going to speak german you're obviously pretty smart with languages you, you could learn german but you're not going to be totally fluent right away you're going to have a limited vocabulary you're going to have a limited sense of grammar people will t- say things to you and you're not going to understand them or you're not going to understand perfectly and not very often you're going to say could you repeat that or you know what is that word or you're going to mix up past tense future tense you know all that kind of thing <laughs> well it's like that with god you know god speaks to us but his Obviously, his language, his vocabulary, all of that is far more developed than us. He has to speak down to our level. And for us to be able to understand God, we have to learn God's vocabulary. We have to learn God's language. That's why reading the Bible, being familiar with the Bible, is so important. Because we're giving our minds words and concepts that serve part of like the divine vocabulary these are ideas that god has already used to speak to the world so if we have them in our memories it's a lot easier for the voice of god to come to us and obviously we can't just you know read the bible in a day so that's where the church and the community of the church comes in all together we've been reading the bible for two thousand years and the jewish people before add on another thousand so we can draw upon the wisdom of our community and of experts and people of wisdom and people who themselves are close to God, whose sense of how God works yeah, and how God thinks is perhaps more attuned than us. Like, suppose you were traveling in Germany. You could travel by yourself with a little bit of German, you know, or maybe you travel with a friend who's fluent. It's going to be a lot easier to get around. The saints are people who are fluent in God. If God was a I was going to say that exactly, you know, the examples so, of saints. Yeah. So the examples of saints and even the living saints around us who we know are close to God, they can help us discern those things too. So that, that's kind of how we can help figure out what is God, what is just our imagination, yeah. and what is God talking to us through our imagination. Yeah. And that so. question, you know what, for me personally, it really speaks up for me because I, I, I went through like, um, something in my life uh you know back in my dancers year but I'm, what i want to say to that person that wrote that i don't know if i'm wrong bishop Dowd. please tell me if i'm wrong i for me i felt really that it was not my imagination i felt that it was not me like i felt a sense of peace that i was i was anxious and i had palpitation you know back then with my entire story and I felt a sense of peace and I felt the message coming in. And I'm like, this is, I'm like, it's not, it's like, I'm anxious and I have palpitation. And out of a sudden like this, a peace. Is it also, does it also concern the feeling? Like I will, I will say to that person, is it, be, you know, sense of peace. When God is there, we have peace, no? Yes, definitely. Uh, peace, uh, a sense of inner peace is one of the features that God is speaking to us. Uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola talked about mm. that very famously. Um, and, you know, the, there is the opposite kind of communication, which doesn't come from God. It, it's temptation. Mm. Temptation is the opposite thing, and it doesn't give us peace. It, it works us up, you know. So all of these sorts of inner dynamics, our, our inner psychology, and then you throw in God talking to us, you know, as well. But certainly peace uh is a key thing but it's not just a momentary peace mm-hmm. it's not like you know you're itchy and you scratch and you know you now have peace exactly yeah. no no it, it it's a lasting it's a durable peace yeah. that usually is accompanied by a sense of joy and mm-hmm. a sense of meaning yes oh my meaning God. and purpose when we have meaning purpose joy deep satisfaction uh, a deep longing for something that is greater than us. Uh, all of those things are 
good signs that that God is speaking to us. He can also disturb us sometimes. Like I've known people who were leading lives that were very far from God and maybe had a lot of evil things going on mm -hmm. and God God kind of shook them up, shook their cage a bit, you know. He can do that too. But again, it's about usually people in that state they're at a point where they realize their life is going nowhere and they something has to change they just don't know what and so god is able to use that moment to speak to them so you there's a there's a momentary there's a momentary disturbance but it leads yes. to a greater sense of purpose mm -hmm. and peace mm -hmm. the last question and this is a <laughs> this is a big one i don't know what with the with part one i end up with a big question this one too this is a big question what is a good catholic what is a good catholic we go to church say our prayers we be good we believe but what is the definition of a good catholic okay how do we know we're doing good we're a good good i like good catholic i like that <laughs> right right um well the interesting thing about the question is it implies there's some kind of standard Right. Like mm -hmm. the danger of saying what's a good Catholic, you know, the opposite is what's a bad Catholic, you know. And so we can be looking at it as a kind of objective measure or objective standard. Th that is true, but I don't think we need to measure it that way. First of all, to be to be Catholic means to be part of the Catholic Church. And so it means to be part of that community that community that God has called together and a community that is united in faith. It's also united in the sacraments, you know, or the means of God's grace. And so to be a, a good Catholic, I prefer the term practicing Catholic mm. because practicing implies we need practice. <laughs> not, we're not perfect. You we're know? Not. The problem with the term good Catholic is very often what it really means is good enough. Mm. You know, I want to be good enough. Uh, well, Catholics, to be a Catholic, you're a dancer. I mean, when you're when you practice an art like dancing, you have to practice, right? You go into studio and you practice your moves and everything. Do you ever get to a point where you say, well, you know what? I've done enough practice. I am a good enough dancer now. And so I don't ever need to practice again. Never, never. Not. Of course not. The moment you stop practicing, the moment you're going to slide and your dance will get worse. And and also, we just if we if we love that excellence, we're going to strive for it. Yeah. You know, uh we, we, you don't want to put pressure on yourself to the point where you go crazy, but the idea is with God's help, we can be people of excellence. So there's no such thing really as a a good enough Catholic where we say I'm good enough and that's it, I'm done. No, no, we're practicing Catholics, which implies we're not perfect. We can always learn more. We can always develop more. So what is a good Catholic? A good Catholic is a practicing Catholic, someone who uses the means, the tools of spiritual self-improvement, of spiritual connectedness to the community, and most importantly, of charity of love and it's not just our own personal feelings of love it's practical choices and uniting with others to make those choices even more effective three individuals can accomplish a certain amount of good but three individuals united together on a common project very often can do so much more than mm -hmm. if if they were considered separately Imagine if, as a church, we were able to rally the energies and the talents of every single Catholic on the planet. Wow. We, you know, it would be an unstoppable force of good. But we have to be constantly practicing and you know, building ourselves up and letting God build us up. So I don't know if that answers the question, but those are some themes. If you're looking for the checklist of what's the minimum to be a good Catholic, certainly worship. Uh, worshiping God through mass, through confession, you know, through the sacraments in general. Mm -hmm. Definitely, that's a that's a baseline. Knowing the scriptures, we talked earlier about getting to know the Bible so that the words of God are in our mind and it's easier for us to feel that connection. Personal prayer, 
personal prayer because that's how we tune the soul like the radio you know so that we can get the signal coming into our soul and and that comes through prayer meditation through listening to god uh unity with the church getting to know the lives of saints getting to know our local parish getting to know other people whom we can relate to in our faith even in our struggles we don't have to be perfect we we come as we are and you know the catholic church like i said it's like a gym you know you don't come to the gym because you're already buff you come to the gym because you want to be you know strength stronger yeah and uh of course the most important thing is that commitment to jesus mm. getting to know the story of jesus uh, really having that love for Jesus, uh, praying to the Lord and being receptive to his His love for us and his will for us. All the other things don't mean anything if we take Jesus out of it. Um, Jesus is the son of God who loves us and has come for us. So I would say all of those things together are part of the package of what it what it looks like to be a good Catholic. Well, thank you so much again, Bishop Thomas Dow. Thank you for your kind, uh, your your time. You're, you're so kind of like giving us all your time and and being here with us, answering all these questions from people that that send it to us. Thank you again. Um, I know, guys, we did a part one, so please listen to part one. This is the part two, and uh, and hopefully we're gonna see you guys on season four. So thank you again, and uh, and God bless, Bishop Dow. Thank you very much. It's a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity. And God bless everyone who's listening to this. Again, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone, not just the listeners, everyone who helped me here for this season. I hope you guys are going to share. If you still have some questions, please DM me, send me some message, and I'm going to make sure your question is going to be answered. Um, I hope I see you soon. I hope for season four. Let's put that in God's hand. And until then, God bless. All right, that's it for this week's episode, my friends. If you have questions about anything we've spoken about here on the podcast today, I would love to hear from you. You can always connect with me on social media. I'm Maribel Mayorga on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But for now, I want to thank you so much for being part of today's journey. And I'm really grateful that you chose to spend your time with me. God bless you.